Before I get into the sermon, I asked a pastor if I could say a few words. Uh, um, this month is Right to Life Month. How many of you knew that? Yeah, it's uh, designed to commemorate uh, one of the most infamous decisions that the Supreme Court made on uh, January 22, 1973. It was uh, agreed to allow women to have abortion on demand. And since then, some 53 million babies have been aborted. Think of that. That's uh, almost nine times the number of uh, people that were killed in the uh, Nazi Holocaust. It's a divisive issue in our uh, society today. You know, you've got the pro-life group and, of course, the pro-choice. I want everybody to know that I am choice, too. But I differ from the pro-choice movement in that I think the choice is made in the bedroom and, and should not be made in the abortion <coughs> clinic. Now, the whole issue hinges on whether or not the unborn child is in fact a human being or not. And notice I say unborn child and not fetus. You know, that's the buzzword among the uh, pro-choice movement. It's not a, an unborn child, it's a fetus. You know, the greatest acts of barbarity are committed when we dehumanize a particular people group. You know, you had the slavery down in the South, there was another infamous uh, decision made by the Supreme Court called the Dred Scott decision. I believe it was in 1857, something like that, where a slave was declared not a human being, but simply a person's property, dehumanized. Same thing in Nazi Germany. The Jews were declared to be subhuman creatures, not regular human beings. And during the terrible wars that we have, they put the infantry on the front lines and they're just called cannon fodder. And they're just pawns in the hands of uh, people, you know, struggling the, the powers that are uh, up there. No matter that they have <coughs> wives, maybe, and their sons of, and, uh, um, of uh, people, that everybody suffers. And it leads, you know, this kind of mentality leads to almost uh, some comical things, you know, if it weren't so tragic. I recall the uh, uh, occasion of a uh, botched abortion. I wish I had taken the time to really document it uh, when it came out. But uh, apparently a, a woman went in for an abortion and the uh, doctor botched the abortion and the, the baby came out alive. And, uh, you know, the doctor noticed that it was alive. The child was alive. I shouldn't call it an it. It was either a he or a she. And he jumped up on the uh, clinic table there where the baby was laying and began to strangle it. And he said, this blankety-blank baby just won't die. Interesting, it was a baby now that was out of the uh, mother's womb. But it was just a fetus before then. You know, this is the twisted logic. Well, the assistant there got, just got sick and had to, to leave the room. 
And the capstone of the whole story was that the family found out that the baby had born, been born alive and they sought to put ch press charges against the abortion doctor. People, I, th I think that's just twisted logic. I think it, the, that baby was no more of a human being when it was out of the womb than it was in the womb. Amen? Now, human life, I believe, begins at conception. Psalm 51, verse 5, uh, David talks about, he said, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That, to me, says that the sin nature happens at conception. And if the sin nature happens at conception, then the image of God uh, occurs at conception too. And what else makes a human being a human being but the image of God? You know, animals don't have a sin nature because animals don't have the image of God. And if the image of God happens at conception to me, that is a human life. Now, practical on here, I just want to quickly go through that before I start the sermon. There's forgiveness, you know. In an audience this large, uh, there's a, a very good chance that maybe some of you have been involved in some way or another with abortion. And a lot of times, you know, a feeling of guilt happens after that. And I want you to know that there is forgiveness with God. There's no sin that we could ever create, do that is not forgivable by God. And I'm going to be talking about that. You know, my message is going to be on the grace of God. Second of all, we can pray for the overturning of this uh, terrible decision. You know, and that's something that we should really be praying about. And thirdly and finally, we can support the right to life groups. Uh, I got my figure of the 53 million from a, uh, an email that I get, uh, you know, often from a group called uh, 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 Online for Life. And uh, they usually send me maybe uh, three or four emails, something like that, per week. Uh, Brian Fisher heads it up. Uh, he's doing great work, you know, and uh, he's uh, tallied, you know, hundreds of babies that have been saved through his ministry. And I think that's a great ministry, uh, brothers and sisters. You know, we, we talk about people that save lives. Here, here's a man, his ministry has uh, really uh, saved hundreds. Of, there's hundreds of people that are alive today that wouldn't be alive otherwise. So we can support the right to life and uh, remember, uh, you know, and, and pray that uh, maybe one of these days Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Amen. Okay, let's get into the, uh, yes. Before you, while you're right there, uh, I was just thinking, you know, that you rattled off that number of 53 million. When they, but when you realize there's 300 million of Americans, they're actually kind of playing a little more on how many people have been killed. And with all those people out there that say, oh, where's God? Because all this stuff's going on. Why do we have cancer? Why do we have this? Why do we have that? Well, I think in 53 million, we probably killed a few terrorists or something. Yeah. So just, just food, food for thought. So it isn't a matter of, well, okay, boom, boom. Well, I think that, you know, it, it puts it more in perspective. We've killed not only babies, we've killed cures. We've killed things in ways that God wants to help mankind. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. 
I, I remember this story of a uh, professor that, uh, you know, gave this, you know, little chestnut for his college class to uh, chew on. He says, uh, you know, you have a couple, the mother has tuberculosis, the father has syphilis. He says, uh, you know, the three children were born to them. One of them was born blind because of the father's syphilis. Another had tuberculosis from the mother. And the third one was born deaf because of the uh, uh, father's syphilis. He says, now the uh, uh, wife is pregnant again. What would you do? And the majority of the class said, abort the, uh, the baby. And the professor said, congratulations, all of you that voted for abortion. You just killed Beethoven. You know. Too often we try to play God. God has a role for every person here in this life. And, you know, some people say, well, what about in the case of rape? Well, I, you know, I, I really sympathize with the uh, woman in case of rape. But, you know, Ethel Waters, the famous uh, Broadway singer, was conceived as a result of rape. Uh, evangelist James Robeson. Everybody's heard of James Robeson? You've heard of him? Yeah. He was conceived as a result of rape too. God has a plan and purpose for every human being that's ever been conceived. You know? And uh, I, I, like I said, I sympathize with the woman that may have been raped. You know, but I think the best way for her to get past that horrible experience is to carry the, forgive the, the, the man that did that terrible deed and carry the child to term and then decide to, from there whether she wants to keep it or uh, uh, give the, the child up for adoption. I think that's the best way for her to overcome it. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get into the uh, sermon. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. kind of a lengthy passage. I'm going to uh, try to read through it very quickly. This is the uh, story of the prodigal son. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give to me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after that, the younger son got, gathered it all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance on riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and they sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the uh, husk that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. Then he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and, and despair, and I perish with this hunger? I will arise and go unto my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants." 
And he arose and came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to make merry. Now the elder son was in the field, and he came and drew near the house, and he heard the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And they said unto him, Thy brother is come, and the father has killed, thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years have I served you, and neither transgressed uh, I at any time thy commandment, and yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, thy son, not his brother, thy son was come, and who has devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are ever with me, and all that I have is yours. It was fitting that we should make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and now is alive again, was lost and now is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the illustrations you have given us, Lord, of your heart towards your people, those that are lost, Lord God. And may we also have that same heart, Lord, and not see them, Lord, as uh, evil people, Lord, that are not part of this church or part of the church universal, but Lord God, is, is souls that are lost and need to be found and need to find that free gift of eternal life that you offer for each of us. So Lord, I pray that you just take these lips of clay and help me to speak out the message that you have shared with me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to speak to you today from the message, Understanding the Grace of God. Uh, as an introduction, Paul tells us how important this is when he tells us that we are saved by grace and grace alone, apart from works. And it's not just a matter of uh, uh, understanding it for our salvation, but also grace, the grace of God completely underlies all of his dealings with us as his people, as we're going to see. There's a uh, man by the name of uh, Richard Dresselhaus. Anybody have heard of uh, Richard, Dr Richard Dresselhaus? He was pastor of uh, San Diego First Assembly down there in San Diego, the, uh, uh, one of the largest uh, Assemblies of God churches in the area. You know, he uh, uh, would have easily a thousand people pass through his uh, uh, church on any uh, given Sunday and maybe uh, uh, more, much more than that. But he was interim pastor at the Assemblies of God Church in St. George for a little while. 
And uh, I passed through there a couple of Sundays in 2006. Uh, there was a Thai boy that I was mentoring, and I took him here to Utah and got to see the uh, 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 Grand Canyon and Zion and Bryce, and we even went up to Arches. But uh, the two Sundays that we were on that trip, we uh, uh, went to church there, and uh, I heard him speak. And he t said to the congregation, he said, just about every sermon that I preach is on some aspect of the grace of God. This is a great man of God, pastor of a church of over a thousand people. And that's how much <clears throat> of a priority he put on the grace of God. Now, the passage that I read is a familiar passage. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. And what I want to focus on in this message is just those last eight verses. You notice the reaction of the elder son towards his brother and his father. You know, uh, most of you know that I've done uh, missionary work in Thailand, and this really strikes this message really strikes a chord with them, because most come out of a Buddhist background. And uh, the Buddhists you know, and all the uh, Eastern religions have this concept of what's called karma. Well, what's karma? Karma is that you basically, that you reap what you sow. You know, uh, Thai have a, an expression that says, uh, if you do good, you receive good. If you do evil, you receive evil. You reap what you sow. And it's not just Eastern religions, but it's common to man, too, a certain affinity of uh, this sort of thinking. Uh, my father, you know, he, he would be joking around, and when he, something good would happen, maybe he'd find a parking space up close to where he needed to, uh, to be. He'd say, that comes from clean living, you know. Now, he did, said it more of a joke, but that's kind of a mentality that we have, that if something good happens to us, it's because we did something good. And it permeates the Christian church, too. I, uh, uh, when I first started working with my uh, job uh, with the uh, U.S. Navy, I worked with this uh, older uh, Filipino lady. Her name was Daisy. And uh, she was Catholic, as might be expected, but she wasn't a particularly good Catholic. But when I started talking to her about the grace of God, she uh, got a little bit miffed at that. And she went to the priest and uh, talked to the priest about that. And she came back and she was armed with uh, James uh, uh, chapter 2, you know, the, where James says, well, faith without works is dead. And I've talked to the uh, Wednesday night crowd about this, you know, how, you know, uh, all throughout the New Testament, particularly the writings of the Apostle Paul, Paul talks about the grace of God, how we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift, it's not of works. And so he, Paul just devotes almost an entire book, the book of Romans, on this whole concept of salvation of, by grace through faith. So to me, it's, it's you know, ludicrous to think that just James, with one sweep of the pen there in chapter 2, you know, does away with all of Paul's craft, carefully crafted arguments. So uh, grace, though, is a concept that is really just about unique to uh, Christianity. 
if you adhere to this concept of karma and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Catholics don't call it uh, uh, karma, they call it penance. You know, the, that if you sin, you've got to confess your sin to the uh, uh, priest and then he'll ordain some kind of penance, some kind of thing that you're going to do to uh, make up for the evil that you've uh, uh, done. You know, again, it's, you're into a uh, concept of works and a salvation by works is a salvation of merited favor. Uh, next slide, uh, Randy. Thank you. What is the grace of God? Well, first of all, it's diametrically the opposite of karma. It is God's forgiveness to unrighteous man as a free gift. It's something that's not earned or deserved. You know, there's no forgiveness in karma, people. You know, you do something wrong, you're going to pay for it in some way or another. You're going to reap what you sow no matter what. And this makes it hard for people who adhere to these Eastern religions to forgive each other. Because if there's no forgiveness in karma, then there's no real forgiveness for each other either. But we as Christians believe in the unmerited or unearned favor of God. Romans 11 verse 6, Paul tells us, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it is of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, what does that mean? It means, basically, you cannot have a salvation of merited favor and unmerited favor at the same time. Amen? The two terms are mutually exclusive. You know, you either get something as a gift or you earn it. One of the two. You can't have it both ways. <clears throat> the two terms, merited favor and unmerited favor, are direct opposites. They're mutually exclusive. Therefore, one does not work for salvation and a right relationship with God if you have a uh, salvation by grace. It's something you don't earn or deserve. Next slide. And Paul outlines this thing in, in no uncertain terms. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's grace there. Next slide, Randy. Now, many, man has many difficulties in understanding the grace of God. First of all, the pride of man makes him not want to admit that his efforts are futile. He is p 
powerless to attain the righteousness that God demands for salvation. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. The word there, filthy rags, is an interesting term, and I kind of hesitate to explain it because it's going to embarrass some people, but I'll do it anyway for the sake of emphasis here. The word there for filthy rags is a Hebrew term for a woman's menstrual cloth. You don't get much more filthy than that. That's what God thinks of our own efforts to attain righteousness. But in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, this is what Paul says. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he has reason for which he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But what things were gained for me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubt, doubtless I consider all things but loss, but for the excellence, see, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, or dung, I think the uh, King James. And that's literally what he said. We have a few other choice words in our language for that particular uh, uh, thing, but uh, they're not part of my vocabulary. That I may win Christ. And being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So you've got your choice. You know, righteousness is often portrayed in the uh, uh, Bible as a garment. That's why Isaiah says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You either stand before God on the day of judgment in the filthy rags of your own self-righteousness or you stand in the pure robe of righteousness which Jesus gives to you. That is the grace of God. I'd rather have the righteousness of uh, Christ than my own righteousness. Amen? Okay, that's what I'm trying to get across. You know, Paul says, I've got all these things going for me, you know, in the Jewish religion. But he realized it was meaningless. And none of it gave him a right standing with God. Only the righteousness of God was what really mattered. Second of all, man does not want to admit his sin is so great to cause death. And that is either his death or that of the Son of God. 
Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on in uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 23, and says that the wages of this sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin has a terrible cost, brothers and sisters. It winds up costing our relationship with God if we leave it uh, and stay that way. And I've talked about death before, you know, and death, you know, uh, is, in, in the Bible, it means separation. And there's two kinds of death in, in the Bible. There's physical death where your spirit is separated from your body at the moment of death. And then there's spiritual death where your spirit is separated from God and does not enjoy the fellowship, the uh, relationship with God that he has created you to have. Now we're all born spiritually dead, separated from God. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, he told Adam, he said, in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Well, he ate of the forbidden fruit. He didn't die physically, did he? But he died spiritually. He died in his trespasses and sins. And he has passed on that sin nature to each one of us. And we're all born with it. But he also gives us the cure, too. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? One of these days we're all going to die physically, but we can live spiritually and through the grace of God. Number three, man thinks that there are some that are too great a sinner to deserve the grace of God. A good example of that is the uh, uh, elder brother of the prodigal. You know, he talks about his brother, and he doesn't even call him his brother, as I pointed out. He calls him your son, you know. Uh, he thinks, well, he's wasted all of your substance on prostitutes. Actually, there was no actual record of that in the uh, parable, but that's what he thinks. Some people think that there are sins that, that could be committed that are so great that even the grace of God cannot uh, uh, atone for it, and that's not true. You know, uh, the truth is that none of us are really deserving of the, God's grace, but God loves us anyway, and there is no sin that is too great that his, sin, that his uh, grace cannot be extended to us. Next slide. And that grace, that is because God's grace is uh, um, <clears throat> based on three things. God's love, God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. Next slide, Randy. First of all, God's love. The Greek word is agape, and agape love is is a love by choice. 
It's not based on the intrinsic merits of the, uh, that, which is be, uh, that which is love, the, the beloved. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, early in my Christian walk, I used to hear beautiful sermons on this agape. You know, how it's God's love that it is extended to us. You know, it's not something that is earned or deserved. And that's all true, except the agape love is not just God's love. It's the love of man also. And you see this in verse 19. Verse 19 there says, And this is condemnation that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now that's not the love of God there, but it's the same Greek word, agape. So agape love is basically a love by choice. You choose what you want to love. And it's so true. The alcoholic loves his bottle. The dope addict loves his needle. The cigarette smoker loves his cigarettes. He agapes them. He chooses them to love them. Are they lovable? Absolutely not. They're going to destroy his health and his life. But he still loves them anyway. Doesn't matter if it's worth loving or not, he loves it anyway. And that's the way that we are too. It's not a matter of where, whether we're lovable. When you come right down to it, we're not all that lovable, are we? If you're really honest with yourself. But God still loves us anyway. And his grace is rooted in his love for us. Next slide. Second of all, God is merciful. Titus 3.5, we've already looked at that. Not uh, by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he, loves, uh, he uh, saves us. God doesn't want to condemn us. But he wants all of us to be saved. There's a story about uh, Napoleon. Was in a, uh, uh, you know, the Emperor Napoleon in France was in a procession. And he's going down there. And all of a sudden, in front of his horse, this woman comes up and falls down and begs him, Mercy, mercy, great Napoleon, mercy. And uh, he, Napoleon says, uh, and who do you want me to extend mercy to? And she says, uh, my husband, he's going to be executed. And he, she says, who is your husband? And uh, she says his name and his face clouds with rage. And he says, your husband is a traitor and he deserves to die. And she said, I didn't ask for justice, great Napoleon. I asked for mercy. God loves us, and he's merciful to us. So his grace is according to mercy. He doesn't want any of us to perish. 1 Timothy uh, 2, verse 4 says, Who would have all men 
to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering is patient to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, some people talk like they actually seem to enjoy this thought, you know, of people, some people roasting in hell, you know, uh, maybe Bin Laden or Hitler or Stalin, those guys, you know, or even somebody they don't like, you know. Ah, let them go to the infernal regions, you know. Uh, you know. But that's not uh, God's heart there. God, God's heart breaks for every person who slips into eternity apart from him. And hell was created for, not for man, but for the devil and his angels. And if man goes there, he goes there because he chooses that rather than God. He loves the darkness rather than the light. Next slide, Randy. Thirdly, God is faithful. The Hebrew word is hesed. That is, whatever God says, he's going to do it. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Brothers and sisters, you can be sure of one thing, that if God says something, he means it. And it's going to happen. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6 verse 8 that it is impossible for God to lie. To do so would violate his very nature. Think about that. If God ever lied, he would be violating his very nature. And so it is with us too. We need to be men and women of our word. And when we tell somebody we're going to do something, we must do it. And so then we will also be godly and godlike in our actions. Next slide, Randy. Now here are some of the benefits of a right concept of the grace of God. First of all, it allows us to cease striving to please God through our own human efforts. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Isaiah 30 verse 15, one of my real favorites here. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, shall you be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. In Hebrews 4, verse 10, he talks about the rest of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he is also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Not of works, 
lest any man should boast. If you have the right concept of God's grace, you won't be concerned with what the, the Thai people call tambun, which means make merit. You know, I uh, have friends there in Thailand that I message frequently in uh, Facebook, and one of them is not a Christian, and she'll tell me about how she's going to the temple to tambun, to make merit. And I uh, uh, message back to her and tell her, I don't have to make merit because Jesus made all the merit that I need. Jesus merits that I will stand before him in the day of judgment, not my own. You rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sins and his righteousness. You know, there was a uh, great missionary, Hudson Taylor. Anybody heard of Hudson Taylor? You know, these are great heroes of the faith, uh, and too often we're ignorant of them. Hudson Taylor went to China and formed the China Inland Mission. And China Inland Mission, even though China closed to the gospel many years ago, uh, you know, and all of the China, China Inland Mission uh, missionaries had to leave, they continued on, but uh, they changed the name to OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship. When I was a missionary in Thailand back in the 82 and 83, I uh, know that OMF had about 300 missionaries right there in Thailand. So the legacy of Hudson Taylor lives on. But I, w I was reading his biography, and it came to the matter of his conversion. He'd been raised in the church, but he just didn't know Jesus quite yet. And he was reading this book, and it talked about the finished work of Christ. And Hudson Taylor said to himself, why does the author call it the finished work and not the atoning work? And then it suddenly dawned on him, it's the finished work because Jesus said it is finished, paid in full. Your sins have been paid in full. And that was the moment of his conversion when he realized there was nothing more that needed to be done, that Jesus' work on the cross was finished and the redemption of man has been completed. Amen. Amen. And that's what uh, the Apostle Paul discovered as we already read there in Philippians chapter 3. It's the righteousness of God that really cuts the mustard with God not our own self-righteousness. Next slide, uh, Randy. Get a little misty-eyed here, sorry. <clears throat> Second benefit is it frees us up from the pain of guilt if we sin or do not do the things that we feel would please God. For example, the prodigal, you know, he returns back to his father and he wants to be his servant, you know. Make me like one of your hired servants, you know. Even your hired servants have it better than what I've got, you know. But the father didn't want a servant, another servant. He just 
wanted his son back. And it's true of God. If we fall into sin, he doesn't want us to, he doesn't want to punish us. He's not angry with us. He just wants to come back to him and reestablish that relationship with him again. And therefore we can come boldly to him if we enter in true repentance. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Satan's the one that wants to lay that guilt trip on you. Why does he want to do that? So you'll be isolated from uh, God. And you will not seek his help when you need it the most. Come boldly before the throne of, uh, of grace. Confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thirdly, it allows us to pursue a personal relationship with God from a grateful heart instead of an effort to curry His favor. You know, the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, different other religious groups, they turn you into a slave. You've got to do this. You've got to do this to win your salvation. You know. And so, the whole motivation for pursuing God is to get, win your salvation. That's their reason for saying, you know, you've you got to do the works. You know, faith without works is dead. Well, I produce the works, you know. I've proven that over and over again with my missionary work. And do some more now. But I don't do it because I'm trying to win my salvation. I do it because I love God and I love God's people. And so my motivation becomes love not in an effort to get my salvation. There's a book called uh, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Anybody ever uh, seen that book? Yeah, I've, I've got it. it. It really shaped my way of thinking. It's a study in the book of Romans. And it confuses people. You know, I showed it to my grandmother, who's, uh, uh, she was part of one of the mind science religions, Unity School of Christianity. And she looked at the title, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious, and she said, is it a joke? <laughs> she didn't understand that. You know, being religious is trying to work your way to salvation. But that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is responding to God and establishing that relationship that he paid so dearly to reestablish. Things to remember about grace. Next slide, uh, Randy. First of all, grace is not a license to sin. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses. You can look those up in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, and 6 through uh, 1 through and 2. 
But in 6, 1 through 2, um, Paul says, Shall I then continue to uh, sin that grace may abound? And then he says, God forbid. You know, that was a big thing. Uh, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have the story about this uh, man that was in the church and uh, he was living in sin. And Paul says, and, and you're puffed up with pride and you should be mourning instead. And why were they puffed up with pride? They were saying, well, you know, he's involved in this illicit relationship. That shows you what the grace of God can do. And he says, that's the wrong attitude. <laughs> We've all drunk of the poison of sin, have we, brothers and sisters? Grace is God's antidote. So, do we take the antidote for uh, poison and then continue to partake of it? Not in your life. As Paul says, God forbid. If we truly believe this, that the wages of sin is death, we're not going to continue to live in it. Paul says, God forbid. Next slide. Grace also means that we can't take credit for God's blessing. You know, there's uh, scriptures that uh, appear to promise God's blessing to his people. I've mentioned uh, Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 8, uh, 14. I'm not going to uh, go through that. But basically, the, uh, the whole chapter of uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28 is the blessings and cursings of God. Blessings to them in the first part of the chapter, if they will follow his laws and uh, uh, pursue the relationship with him, and cursings if they stray away from him and do the things that were not pleasing in his sight. And I have seen so many of these uh, people that pre preach this prosperity gospel that will quote Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28. The problem is Deuteronomy chapter 8 is dealing with the Jews, the Israelites who were under the law. You know, I heard something really profound a couple of months ago uh, about this and said, you know, the, the speaker said, you know, God never gave the law to the church. He didn't give us the law. Look at John 1.17. John 1, 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Paul had some pretty choice words for the, the law in uh, uh, the book of Galatians. He called it a schoolmaster. In another place, he called it a yoke that we, neither we nor our fathers, were able to bear. The curse of the law, we talk about the curses there in Deuteronomy 18, or Deuteronomy 28, the curse of the law was the fact that they couldn't keep it. I'd much rather have grace rather than the law, wouldn't you? And that's why the writer of Hebrews calls the new covenant 
a better covenant. It's founded on better provinces. It's founded on a better uh, sacrifice. It's founded on a better high priest. So why do we want to go back to 2 Deuteronomy 28 and be under the, the law? You say, well, there's blessings there. Well, I, I'm blessed. I don't need to, you know, uh, I'm just blessed by being uh, with, with the Lord and having that relationship with him. Um, also, Malachi 3, uh, verses 10 and 11, and uh, Proverbs 3, verses 8 through 10. Now, you know, there, there's, there's certain things that follow. If you're going to be in sin, you know, there are going to be consequences, no matter what happens. You know, David sinned with his, you know, uh, adultery with uh, Bathsheba. And later the uh, murder of her husband. And God forgave him for that, but there were consequences that followed afterwards. And you read the, that back in Second uh, Samuel. Some really uh, terrible uh, circumstances that happened to David, and it was because of his sin. Third John verse 2 is often quoted by these uh, health and wealth uh, prosperity preachers. You know, I wish above all else that you would prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. So the faith prosperity teacher says, well, if you stay close to Jesus, he's going to prosper you health-wise and materially. The problem is that gospel is not true because it doesn't follow. You know, just because you know, you're suffering in your health or suffering deprivation doesn't mean that God is angry with you in any way. And if you do stay close to Jesus, it doesn't mean that God is under obligation to bless you. So don't take credit, therefore, for yourself if God blesses you. Kind of bugs me when people go around saying, well, I've got my uh, nice car, nice home because uh, I had faith. You know, they're taking the credit for it. Instead of being grateful to God for what he has given them, they're saying it's, you know, they're back to this whole idea of works. You know, if I do this, God's going to do this for me. You know, doesn't work that way. Okay, next slide. Simple fact is that God does not have to and will not always bless you. If you take a look at Job chapter uh, uh, 1 and, and 2, you'll find that Job was doing everything right, but then suddenly everything was taken from him. His wealth, his family, and even his health. And he couldn't understand it. And uh, the... Uh, Friends that he had came over there and they said, well, the reason for this, all these horrible disasters have happened to you, Job, is because there's sin in your life. And he says, I don't know what sin I could possibly do. You know, I don't know why God has done this to me. And then God showed him at the end, you know, that it was all a test. And he passed with flying colors and God restored his family and his wealth to him and his health. The early apostles, you know, were they out of favor with God? Why did they have to go out and suffer martyrs' deaths? Ten of them died for their faith. The only one that didn't die for his faith was John, and he suffered uh, exile in the, the Isle of Patmos. 
Also people, Christians today in persecuted countries, you know, they're suffering. There's that uh, uh, pastor, Iranian pastor, that went back to visit his family in Iran. He's been thrown in jail. He's been there and tortured. Needs the dire need of medical attention. Is what, What's with him? You know, did he sin? Is he out of favor with God because he's suffering like that? <clears throat> you know, this, this health and wealth gospel is only going to cut it in a prosperous society like what we have here. But if you go to Saudi Arabia and you try to stick close to Jesus over there, you're liable to wind up with uh, losing your head. So if God blesses you, give glory to him and not to yourself. Amen? Always praise him for whatever happens in your life, whether it's good or bad. You know, Job learned that. And he said, the, the Lord gives and the Lord get, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I love that song too. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, and there's a, there's a verse in there. You know, when, when the, the world's filled with darkness, you know, you're in a desert place, you know, you still bless the Lord. Next slide. Finally, we can stifle God's grace in our lives when we harbor a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. You fail of the grace of God when you allow that root of bitterness to spring up in your heart. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And finally, next slide. This is the last one here. I'm, I'm wrapping it up. I know I've gone a little bit long. Uh, the story of the... Uh, parable of the unjust servant and you know I'm not going to read it it's another uh, parable but it basically is a certain servant owed several million dollars to his uh, master and his master uh, came to him you know uh, had him come before him and said uh, you know uh, you need to pay up. And uh, the guy falls on his knees and says, Oh, Master, uh, just give me time. I will, uh, uh, you know, uh, repay you uh, everything that I owe you. And uh, the Master was merciful, forgave him of the debt. The servant goes out and he finds another one of his fellow servants that just owes him a few dollars and says, Pay me up what, what you owe me. And the guy, the guy says the same thing, you know, uh, give me time, be merciful, you know, give me time. I'll repay you in full. But it says he would not, and he threw him into prison. And then his master gets word of that and calls him before him again and says, you wicked servant, I was merciful to you, why won't you merciful to your fellow servant? And then he said, uh, throw him into uh, prison and uh, uh, have him 
uh, the tormentors until he pays every uh, 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 bit. Uh, when, when I was in, uh, during my final year of Bible college, I worked at a paint and hardware section of Montgomery Ward. And one of my coworkers was a woman by the name of Anna. And uh, she had been in the church. One day her daughter came in and her daughter was telling me about her. And says, she raised us up in the church and now she's dragging her feet, you know, not following the Lord like she should. And uh, Anna had a uh, husband that was an alcoholic and she was uh, uh, divorcing him. And then I began to put two and two together. And I said to myself, uh, you know, she's got a root of bitterness towards her husband. And I went to her and I said, Anna, and I said, uh, are you bitter towards your husband? She said, yes. I said, do you pray for him? She said, oh no, I'm not praying for him. He's already missed out on ever going to hell, heaven, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I directed her attention. You know, I didn't read it to her, but I told her to go read Matthew 18. And she still hadn't done it when I uh, left that job. But, you know, uh, I don't know exactly what the tormentors represent in that particular parable, but I do know that if you harbor a uh, root of bitterness in your heart, you're always going to be a spiritual pygmy. You're never going to mature in the faith. So, food for thought. Chuck Swindoll said this, uh, I borrowed it from him, but it's so true. He said, bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person is going to die. You're the one that suffers ultimately for it. So, conclusion. Today was kind of a teaching session, brothers and sisters. You know, help you better understand what the grace of God is. And if you're, you know, striving and trying to curry God's favor... Cease striving. Be still and know that he is God. And he is the one that is loving towards you. He's merciful. And his mercy extends to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for your grace. And Lord, you did not withhold the very best for us. Lord, you sent your son to die there on the cross for our sins. And Lord, that his work was complete so we can cease striving, Lord God. And Lord, we know that there is forgiveness with you. We have the courage to admit our faults. Lord, your word says that if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, keeps on cleansing us from every sin. Help us just to walk in the light, Lord God, and walk with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Before I get into the sermon, I asked a pastor if I could say a few words. Uh, um, this month is Right to Life Month. How many of you knew that? Yeah, it's uh, designed to commemorate uh, one of the most infamous decisions that the Supreme Court made on uh, January 22, 1973. It was uh, agreed to allow women to have abortion on demand. And since then, some 53 million babies have been aborted. Think of that. That's uh, almost nine times the number of